Well, um, I am an, uh, an iPhone user and uh, just recently got into tweeting, if you know what that is. Um, tweeting is kind of like Facebook, but uh, you can just keep up with random things. In fact, uh, you know, random people. You can keep up with pastors that you like and they'll quote things that they've read in books and things like that. Uh, I like to keep up with comedians and uh, get my latest joke from them. And uh, one of the things I keep up on Twitter with on Twitter is uh, Google Facts, which always has a, just a plethora of fun facts. But I was reading this morning and one of the Google Facts was there's a condition called me-phobia. Me-phobia. And this is the fear of becoming so awesome that the human race can't handle it and everyone dies. Okay. Anyone have that? <laughs> the fear that you are going to become so awesome that the human race can't handle it and everyone dies. Okay. It's actually out there. There's at least one case of it in this room here tonight. <clears throat> At the root of our marital disunity, it's not just a psychological problem that could be handled by a psychiatrist, but it's really a theological problem at the heart of our marital disunity. When a relationship is mired, becomes bogged down in the quicksand of hurt feelings and stony indifference or festering bitterness, that root of bitterness that creeps down deep, it's actually a signal that your selfishness has invaded the union. You are borderline <laughs> uh, encroaching upon me phobia. Your selfishness invading the union. And wherever selfishness reigns, the love of God is absent. I'll say that again. Wherever selfishness reigns, the love of God... You guys are... You're quoting it with me. Your lips are moving. The love of God is absent. The two cannot coexist. Love of God and selfishness, uh, they, they can't exist. And in the book, uh, What Were You Expecting by Paul David Tripp. I'm going up to see him in Seattle this next week. So if uh, anyone wants to go with me, sign up. Um, <clears throat> but uh, Paul David Tripp wrote in one of the chapters, he says, this is where an eloquent Biblical, biblical observation comes in. It's that we are kingdom-oriented people. We always live in the service of one or two kingdoms. We live in the service of the small, personal happiness agenda of the kingdom of self, or we live in the service of a huge origin-to-destiny agenda of the kingdom of God. When we live for the kingdom of self, our decisions, thoughts, plans, actions, and words are directed by personal desire. We know what we want, where we want it, why we want it, how we want it, when we want it, and who we would prefer to deliver it. Our relationships are shaped by an infrastructure of subtle expectations and silent demands. We know what we want from people and how to get it from them. We seek to surround ourselves with people who will serve our kingdom purposes. And we evaluate them not from the perspective of the laws of God's kingdom, but from the perspective of the laws of our kingdom. It is when attraction wanes, flaws show, and the dreams die, that real love has its best opportunity to germinate and to grow. If you're going through a hard time in your marriage, we would argue that God now has you right where he wants you. You are no longer attracted to one another out of self-centered desire. There's no longer holding on to your dream because it's melted away before your very eyes. You are hurt and frightened because what had fueled your relationship is gone and you don't know what to do. But this is not a defeat. This is an opportunity to exit the small space of the kingdom of self and to begin to enjoy the beauty and benefits of the kingdom of God. And so we pray that tonight God would confront our sinful, selfish kingdom that is so small and petty and manipulative and that he would transpose us into the kingdom of the son of his love. He would make us kingdom-minded people. And if you've been convicted... <laughs> By your me-phobia already, 
You can humbly confess it to the Lord and receive forgiveness. You can ask him to wash you and to cleanse you with the love of Jesus. And as we come into Ephesians 5 and as we look at a husband's love for the third time, we have that mephobia confronted by the gospel and in its place is brought in humility, others-centered, Christ-saturated, Holy Spirit-empowered love. As we've been studying Ephesians chapter 5, one Bible teacher says, whenever you're preaching, you want to ask, what would happen? What is the price if I were to ignore this truth? What would the price be if we were to ignore the truths of Ephesians 5 that we've been studying so far? What would happen if we had Ephesians 5 ripped out of our Bible, no longer to shape our lives? What would happen if this truth of Christ-centered, gospel-centered marriage provoking and bringing about submission voluntarily on the part of a Christian wife and exterminating the idea that a husband needs to have selfless love following the example of Christ? What would happen if this would rip out of our text in front of us? I believe that if that happened, God's intention for marriage would never be anything more than a marriage on the horizon or a fantasy that would forever leave our grasp. And of course, we could go back, you know, if we were prison in, Sa- in a prison in Saigon or something, you know, and then we didn't have that chapter. Of course, we could examine the whole of the gospel and the Holy Spirit would bring us to that conclusion. But if we left Paul's exhortation to wives and Paul's exhortation and command to husbands, God's intention for marriage wouldn't be anything more than a made up dream on our part. We're going to be getting back to home groups on October 17th. And uh, so that means we still have, what is it? I don't know, off the top of my head, four weeks. This is, you know, one of those four uh, where we'll be looking at uh, husbands this week, husbands and wives, kind of a conclusion next week. Uh, looking at verse 33 in 1 Peter 3, Colossians chapter 3. And then uh, we'll do a week for parents. And so invite all the parents that you know in the church. Uh, and then the final week, a uh, uh, study on children. And uh, so that'll all come. But right now we want to remember just the pre- preeminent relationship above those others. Uh, and that is the relationship that is reflected or a reflection of, rather, Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. Uh, Look at verse 22, just as a reminder, where we see a Christian wife exhorted. This exhortation needs to be gospel-influenced and motivated by the gospel, where Paul says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, And he is the savior of the body. We remember that the motivation for submission comes from Jesus. Comes from Jesus and his example of submission as well as his example of headship. This is a great task for you wives. We looked at it for four weeks and we understand that this task requires total empowerment by the Holy Spirit in your life. And so in the last three weeks, if you haven't fallen on your face for the power of the Holy Spirit to help you submit as a wife to your husband as as the church submits to Christ, then you've already forgotten everything we've learned in four weeks. Man, fall at the feet of Jesus and cry out for the motivation and the power, the propulsion to be a submissive wife. But we've gone on third week into the husband's role, the husband's realm, and for the Christian husband, we've seen that your responsibility is a lot uh, more deep. There's a lot more instruction given to you and to me. As in verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. The first week we looked at husbands, we defined Christian love on the part of a husband. And uh, if you weren't here, listen to it real good. And, uh, you know, my notes will be available for you guys uh, at some point if you want them. But um, tonight if you want them. (laughs) Uh, It says a definition. 
Uh, love on the part of a Christian husband is defined as his unceasing commitment to act in the highest good of his wife. Have you forgotten it already, men? Have you forgotten that definition? Your unceasing commitment to act on the highest good of your wife. That's the definition of Christian love modeled by Jesus himself. Last week, we moved from definition to description. How do we describe Christian love on the part of a husband? Well, it is the the kind of love that Jesus displays for the church. That's what we see here in Ephesians chapter 5. Jesus describes it by living it out for us. We looked at that last week. We looked at some uh, facets of this love, that this love is self-giving, we looked at last week. Uh, This self-giving, it's so valuable because of the one who laid down his life, as well as what he went through to lay down his life for the church. Separation from the Father at the cross. But something else that we see in the text here of Ephesians chapter 5 is that this love on the part of the true and better husband is not only a self-giving love, but to cover new ground tonight, It's an exclusive type of love. You see, God is all about covenant. He's all about covenant, and we forget that. You remember that the blessings and the privileges of forgiveness and the fullness of the Holy Spirit and eternal life, these are all things that he's made available only to those who he's made a covenant with. And those who've been partakers of this new awesome covenant that was bought and paid for by his blood. In Ephesians chapter 5, we see that this exclusive love of the true and better husband is reserved only for his bride. Husbands, I hope you're taking notes. Your Christ-like Christian love, this, this kind is to be reserved only for your bride. The subject of the love in Ephesians chapter 5 is Jesus. He's the giver of the love. And the object of the love or the recipient of the love is his bride. And look at verse 25. Husbands love women. Just as Christ loved the church. No, it's not women in general. Yes, there's the brotherly, sisterly type of love. This is something else. This is a a husband-wife type of agape love where husbands are to love their wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Now, you might underline if you have a pen or some kind of writing implement, perhaps your mascara, mascara stick is handy. You might just circle the word for that uh, there's just this significance in this small little word for And it carries with it the idea of substitution on behalf of his bride, on for the sake of, in the place of, in the benefit of his bride. He gave himself. And then look at verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. There's exclusivity, if I can say that right. Um, in, in his love. It was for her that he might present her, verse 27, to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So you see, for her, for her, this effectual love for the bride and not just for anybody. All right, And we've looked at this through the election of the Lord in Romans chapter 9. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. In Matthew 1.21, Jesus, or Joseph is, is told by the angel about his son and that he should name his son Jesus, for he will save his people from his sins. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep. And there's this ex- exclusive love for the church. It's a different type of love. And as Tim Savage said, says, the love of this great shepherd evokes, invokes a response from the sheep 
in like kind, the people of God return to his all-encompassing love. And they therefore love him with all of their heart, with all of their soul, with all of their might, as Deuteronomy 6, 5 says. This faithfulness of the loving God towards us brings about loyalty by his subjects. It begets a reciprocal love in response. This same love is applicable within our marriages. Whenever a husband demonstrates unwavering faithfulness to his wife, there will be a prompt response in kind. Now, that doesn't mean we do it for that response to manipulate her. No, we do it in obedience to what we've been told to do by the Lord. And we do it to copy what we've seen him do in his life and death. And so there's a pattern that's applicable for us in our marriages. Our women, our wives will be devoted to us when we love them with this Christ-like love. And so we need to guard this faithfulness, this exclusiveness of our love at all cost. As Savage says, we must admit no rivals to our love. A wife should know herself to be the sole recipient of her husband's romantic affection. As he vowed at the altar, a husband must forsake all others as long as he both, we both, he both, shall live. Love your wives just as Christ loved the church with an exclusive love. This Bible that we have doesn't just make us theologians, but it works out in our theology a practical living, a practical end, a practical outworking. Husbands, love your wives. One preacher said practical attention to a wife extends to everything. It should manifest itself in the most delicate attention to her comfort and her feelings, in consulting her tastes, concealing her failings, in doing nothing to degrade her, but everything to exalt her, in acknowledging her excellencies, commending her efforts to please, in meeting and anticipating all of her reasonable requests, in short, in doing all that ingenuity can invent for her substantial happiness and general comfort. But you see that that love is exclusive. He's to love his wife in a way that he loves no other woman. And where do we see the example of this? In our groom, the ultimate husband. Winston Churchill once attended a formal banquet in London when he was uh, the intending dignitaries there were asked kind of a uh, a, a game-like question, and it got a lot of chuckles. But the question was, if you could not be who you are, who would you most like to be? Everyone there was curious to see what this great ruler, Winston Churchill, would say. And finally, when it came to him and everyone was looking at him, he said this, I would like to be, excuse me, Oh yeah, sorry, I jumped my, sorry, he said, if I could not be who I am, I would most like to be Lady Churchill's second husband. I'd like to be her second husband because he was so exclusively in love with Clementine, her name was. And if you can be in love with a gal named Clementine, let's be honest, you're a good man. Okay, I'm just kidding. It's like the name of a milk cow. I don't know. But (laughs) unless you know someone named, okay. Um. If I could be with anyone else, I would want to be Clementine's second husband because my love is exclusively for her. I have a particular love for her. A wandering eye can be a husband's greatest nemesis. And today with erotic images bombarding our senses at every turn, they can be an overwhelming adversary, especially for men. 
Just in reading Savage, he says, When flames of lust are ignited and when extramarital fantasies are entertained, when sexual purity is threatened, husbands must take quick, aggressive, and even ruthless action to distance themselves from temptation. A casual glance can turn into prolonged stare. No enticement overwhelms so quickly, damages the human soul so deeply, or undermines good marriages so irreparably. And so, as Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, you take a drastic, harsh measure to get rid of it, to cut it off. Or if your eye causes you to sin, you gouge it out. As we studied in Romans chapter 8, verse 13, that we're to mortify the deeds of the flesh. We're to execute violently the deeds of the flesh. As John Owen, the Puritan, said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And men, we are bombarded on every front with lustful images, lustful TV shows. Delete it from your TV, call DirecTV, get the station canceled, you know, put passwords on things, get covenant eyes installed on your computer. And yet, you know what the biggest issue is? It's not the changing of your moral outward behavior. It's the heart issue. It's the heart issue. It's a sin issue. And it's not just with guys. We tend to see it primarily with guys, but it's on the rise with women. The, the destructive, lustful uh, uh, ability to view pornography on any device that you could possibly have in your pocket or carrying around with you. It's good to be blameless. It's good to be above reproach. It's good to have those safeguards. But the issue, men and women, is an issue of the heart. Worship the Lord. Cultivate faithfulness on a daily, hourly, minutely basis by spending time at the throne of God. You've got to be vigilant in cultivating faithfulness for your wife and more importantly, for your God. Nurture faithfulness by spending time in his presence. Fix your sights on him every day. Walk in the Spirit And you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. As Romans 8.13 says, if we live according to the flesh, we will die. But if by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the body, we will live. And then the very next verse says, for those that are led by the Spirit, context is in killing sin, these are the sons of God. The sons of God will be led by the Holy Spirit on how to slaughter their sin in their life. And primarily that will come from having a faithful relationship with Christ, which will have fruits in a faithful relationship with your wives. A faithful, exclusive relationship with your wife. So we see the self-giving love of Christ. We see the exclusive love of Christ. We see here a beautifying love of Christ in verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. The washing of water. So we see this beautification happen, this scrubbing, this cleansing that takes place. And where does this cleanliness come from? By the husbands washing their wives in the word. As Jesus cleanses his bride with the word. Before Jesus was betrayed, he had a good prayer time in the garden. In John 17, 17, he says, Sanctify and set my disciples apart by your truth. Your word is truth. See the the similar language there? Sanctify, that he might sanctify her by the washing of the word. And then Jesus over here in John 17, our groom, prays for his bride that she would be set apart from the filth of the word by the truth, excuse me, of the world, by the truth of the word. Your word is truth. And then verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified by the truth. In 1 Corinthians 6, 11, we read that we are washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. There's this justification that happens where we're declared righteous. And then there's the sanctification process where we're daily pulled out of the world and made and conformed more into the image of Christ. 
It's the, the uh, eternal spirit, Hebrews 9.14 says. The blood of Christ through the eternal spirit will cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. There's a cleansing agent in the blood of Jesus. And in verse 27, we see that our groom who has this cleansing agent, he presents her, the church, to himself, not having a spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. This is one of the greatest purposes of marriage, our holiness, our holiness. As Paul speaks about the church in 2 Corinthians 11, he says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I've betrothed you to one husband that I might present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Paul writing to the Corinthians says, I'm jealous. You guys are struggling with all sorts of sin and you're allowing all sorts of leaven to creep in and that leaven will leaven the whole lump and I'm jealous for you. You're Jesus's. You're not your own anymore. And my job, I've been wanting to present you as this chaste virgin to Christ, pure. As 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says, May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And God has brought husbands into wives' lives. Uh, I almost said men into women's lives. That's not entirely true. One man into one woman's life for this process of sanctification and holiness to take place so that your wife's spirit, soul, and body can be preserved blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus. Now, the job of two or more believers in gospel community is to promote holiness in one another. Listen to this uh, out of uh, Tim Keller's book. It says, friendship is a deep oneness that develops as two people speaking the truth and love to each other journey together to the same horizon. What does this mean? It means that any two Christians with nothing else but a common faith in Christ can have a robust friendship helping each other on their journey toward the new creation, as well as doing ministry together in the world. How can they do that? They can do it through spiritual transparency. Christian friends are not only to honestly confess their own sins to each other, James 5.16, but they're to lovingly point out their friend's sins uh, he or she is blind to. You should give your Christian friends hunting licenses to confront you if you are failing to live in line with your commitments. Christian friends are to stir one another up, uh, even provoking one another to get them on, uh, off dead center. This isn't to happen infrequently, but should happen at a very concrete level every day. Christian friends admit wrongs, offer or ask forgiveness, and take steps to reconcile when one disappoints one another, uh, the other. And so even within the, the church, just Christian friends spur one another on towards holiness. As Hebrews 3.13 says, that we're to exhort one another daily while it's still called today, while any one of us, lest any one of us be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews 10.24 says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. And so as we see someone not being loving and not walking in the love or not practicing and, and living out the fruits of the Spirit, we can exhort one another, considering one another. Galatians 6.1 says, brethren, when a, when, a, when a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. And so you see that two Christian brothers can do this for one another, or, or more, people within a community group, a 242 group, spurring one another on towards holiness, towards love, towards good works, towards using their gifts within the body. And if any two unrelated Christians can do that, how much more should a husband and a wife do that for one another? That should be happening just exponentially within a marriage. If a husband loves his wife as Christ loves the church, he will make her holy. 
He will cleanse her through the washing of the water by the word. Romance, sex, laughter, or plain fun are the byproducts of this process of sanctification and refinement and glorification. Romance, sex, laughter, and a whole lot of fun are are important, but they can't keep the marriage going through years and years of ordinary life. What keeps your marriage going is your commitment to your spouse's holiness, your commitment to his or her beauty. You're committed to his greatest, to his greatness and perfection, to quote Keller for the last time. Biblical love, this this love of washing and promoting holiness in your wife will transform your wife. This is the most powerful shaping agent in the world. This is better than Clorox bleach. This is better than rallies. You know, this this changes society. If godly husbands would promote and point their Christian wives towards holiness, we'd see radical transformation within the world. Love on the part of the Christian husband. No longer do we define it or describe it, but now we're going to show the demand of it. Love on the part of a Christian husband is demanded by virtue of the mystical intimacy that occurs in the act of marriage. Okay, so next week we have a homework assignment. Are you ready for it? Next week, you guys get to bring in your marriage picture, okay? All right, so go pull it off the wall or, you know, whatever it is, or, you know, pull it out of your wallet or something. But uh, those of you that are married, you can bring in uh, your marriage picture because we want to see just, you know, how innocent you looked. And um, <laughs> we see where the gray hair came from or, or the absence of gray hair, whatever. But when you were standing at the altar, and we just want to kind of have some fun and just look at the pictures um, after the Bible study or whatever, uh, we'll remember those times when we were standing at the altar, and it was there that something radically happened to both you and your wife, or you and your husband. Uh, before you walked up the aisle, you were a different person than you were when you walked down the aisle. Something actually changed in your constitution as a person. More than you just being married. More than something external. More than a legal agreement that you know, gave you certain tax status. Something like that happening. Rather, what happened... Something very important that we see here in Ephesians chapter 5 is this two becoming one. This two becoming one. Interesting. Think of that. Before, when you were walking down the aisle, ladies, and you're white, you were totally different than when you said I do, when you made the agreement, and when you walked back down the aisle. At that moment, on the stage or before the uh, altar, you were fused into one with your husband. You were fused into one with your wife. And God has a great perspective that's so much different than external things. He has this perspective of the invisible things that take place at the wedding. This real welding uh, of two people into one. This becoming of one flesh. You might underline it. This demand here. We say become one flesh. And we think it's some meaningless platitude, something to fill the minutes in a wedding sometimes. Or it's a Christian cliche that sounds very religious. It's not a simplified way to say these two people can now have sex with a clear conscience. It's something very radical that in the spiritual realm took place before the Lord. This reality of what happened when two people vowed to live their lives together and for one another. Charles Spurgeon said, happy woman and happy man. If heaven be found on earth, they have it. The two are so blended, so engrafted on one stem. So happy a union of will, sentiment, thought, and heart exists between them that the two streams of their life have washed away the dividing bank and run on as one broad current of united existence till their common joy falls into the ocean of eternal felicity. 
what happens here in this two becoming one. It's as if two vastly different rivers join together. You know, one, you know, from, from a bayou and one from a pure glacier. And as they come together, they form this new one that is so vastly different than either one before. This is God's statement in the Garden of Eden that's quoted here in verse 31. This, this, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. They become as if it was an ontological unity. A dramatic union represents far more than the sum of shared interests, and that's what we at one point thought it was, or a bond of sexual intimacy, and that's what we thought the oneness was, but rather it's a fusion of souls, an organic commingling of two individual lives. God said it in Genesis Paul quotes it in Ephesians 5, and Jesus affirmed it before Paul in Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6. When he answers the Pharisees about their uh, question about divorce, he says, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? Now, when Jesus quotes that, he tells us who said that in Genesis chapter 2. He tells us it was God that said that. Sometimes we think it was Adam in his little worship service after he got Eve. But it was God the Father that said that. It was the creator of marriage. He who made them, Jesus says, said for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, Jesus says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Do you guys remember what the Greek was in that? I think we studied it the second week. The Greek for what Jesus is saying actually means stop separating what God has joined. He knew how great divorce was growing back in his day. And it's grown so much in our day. We're nearly over 50% of Christian marriages end in divorce. And so when two people marry, when they say, I do, something mysterious and invisible and indivisible takes place there at the altar, a fusing together of two lives into an invisible oneness. Artaxerxes says, so in my opinion, even when divorce follows, a divorce that is in fact allowable within the parameters of the scriptures, the effects of that oneness are never fully undone. Never fully undone. There was this unity that took place. God joined it together. Man was not meant to separate it. Paul says here that in Ephesians 5, this is a mysterious intimacy that was first pronounced by God in the garden and affirmed by Jesus in the Gospels. And it's the rationale for a husband to love his wife in this big, sacred, holy way. This is the rationale, guys. This is the mind frame that, that we get this all from. It's from the cre uh, very beginning, from Genesis chapter 2. In verse 28, we read, So, husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Or instead of the word so at the beginning, perhaps your Bible says, in the same way, husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. This word ought, husbands ought to love their own wives. Maybe your Bible says should, ought or should. It's a strong word and it speaks of an obligation or being bound to a duty of doing something. The tense that it's in is in the present tense saying basically to us as husbands, this is a big responsibility that as long as we have breath in our lungs, we will never be done doing it. We will never be done copying Jesus, loving our wives as our own bodies. This sacred obligation will happen as long as we both shall live. We're to love her in the same way. In the same way as what? Or in the same way as whom? In the same way that Christ loved the church. We're to love as our own bodies. Now, you might underline that little word as. 
Sometimes the word as is used as a comparison, like her cheeks were as red as rose or roses, or his hands were as cold as, nope, nails. <laughs> Just kidding. It is ice, in case you were wondering. Uh, this word as, sometimes it's a comparison, but other times it's basically an indication of cause or consequence. And so this is, it, I know it's all like whatever, grammar lesson 101, forget it. But the, I, I say all that to say this is a good translation of this verse, if I could read it to you. Husbands should love their own wives because they are their own bodies. All right? Let me read that again. Husbands should love their own wives because they are their own bodies. That's how, the, that's how that word as is used. It, it's cause. It's because Lindsay is my body. I'm to love her that way. Paul is not attempting to establish the extent of a husband's love. He already did that when he said, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. But rather what he's doing is calling attention to the oneness that the husband shares with his wife. And this establishes how he can justify loving her in this way. They are one flesh. She is his body. She is part of him. When you come to church and your wife's not with you and someone jokes with you and pokes you in the belly and says, hey, where's your better half? They're not joking. <laughs> They're saying, where is your better half? Where is that other part of you? We have the phrase part and parcel. Husbands, your wife is part and parcel of yourself. And the context makes this clear. In verse 28, in the same way, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ loves the church. Paul lays out something pretty common sense to us, that no one hates their own flesh. Every man in his right mind takes care of himself. We nourish ourselves, sometimes a little bit too much. We cherish ourselves, we take care of ourselves, we look out for number one. It's a vital part of who we are. Nourish and cherish. Now, nourish is often used in reference to children. In fact, if you just flip over a chapter in your Bible to chapter 6, verse 4, it says, And you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. That word, bring them up, it's the same Greek word from chapter 5, verse 28. Nourish, bring them up. It means to mature or to bring up into maturity, to provide food for and to feed. So husbands, you are to nourish and bring your wife up into maturity spiritually. You are to literally provide food for your wife and feed your Wife. Now, a man instinctively knows how to do that for himself, and it even comes before the fall, something created into us, and that creation into us is used as an example to do that for our wives. So, nourish. How about cherish? Now, cherish is used to speak of a mother hen who would cover and protect her little henlets or chicklets, chicks, Okay, with her feathers, as Jesus said he wanted to do that to Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 23. And he says, basically, husbands, since your wives are part of you, as is your own flesh, it's your God-given, holy, sacred, important, big duty and obligation as a husband to, for the rest of your life, nourish her, Bring her up into maturity, feed her, and cherish her. And if you're a Christian here tonight, hopefully you are, you've realized in Christ and in intimacy that's been given to you because of his blood, that this is all rooted and grounded in his relationship with you, the church. Verse 29, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. And why does he do this? 
verse 30, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. We're part of Christ's body. We are an actual organic part of Jesus Christ. We are vitally connected to him. And we've been certain, if you've been with Jesus for any period of time, that he has nourished you. He has cherished you. There's a few metaphors within the New Testament that speak this relationship between Christ and the church out. Uh, There's the bride and the groom metaphor that we've been going through pretty in depth in Ephesians chapter 5. There's a building and a foundation. You know, we're the building. Jesus is the foundation, 1 Corinthians tells us. There's branches and vine. As Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. There's this connection, and all of these pictures are intimate, vital connections, oneness, mysterious connections that we have from the scriptures. One of the most graphic here in Ephesians chapter 5 is that we're the body, he's the head. That's a big picture that Paul is trying to communicate that the body receives nourishment from the head. He provides everything for our well-being. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, he has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. Does he nourish us? He nourishes us. He gives us all things pertaining to life and godliness. In Ephesians 1, 3, he says he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Is he providing for you? He does. 2 Corinthians 1.22, he's seated, sealed us and given us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee in our heart. And so he's providing. He's given us eternal life. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He hasn't left us alone as orphans. And has anyone here ever thought that Jesus has failed to nourish and cherish the church? And that is why we love the church. Because Jesus loved the church and loves the church. It's his bride. We are his body. And so here we have the extent of this one fleshedness that you guys share with your wives and you wives share with your husbands. And because it's one flesh, it's not enough to refer to the other person as your partner. Two people that enter into a business agreement, they're partners. Within our marriages, we have something so much more deep. The other half, the better part of you. Two independent units, no more. We are dealing with two halves of one when we deal with the husband and the wife. And so, as a husband, no longer do you get to just think when you go out to make a decision. You don't think like you did when you were living in the bachelor pad. How will this affect me? Those days are long gone if you're a husband. Now you get to ask when you go to make a big decision, how will this affect my bride? And it is crazy how within the church, and Facebook, I'm sorry, like it's like you're gossiping about yourself when you put stuff on Facebook. You're like, I just want everyone to know what I've done, and it was a horrible decision. Uh, you know, I'm not thinking of anybody in particular, but you just have these, you know, I went out and I bought a house, and I didn't tell my wife, and I was like, hey, what do you think? She's like, I hate this place. This is so impractical for every single thing that I do on a daily basis. Oh, I thought you'd like it. Yeah, you weren't, cons- you weren't really considering me. You didn't include me in this decision and working through this. You didn't think, how will this affect my wife? This one who's become a great sharer in my life. In the occupational choices that you make, do you think about your wife? Do you talk about it with your wife? Do you pray about it with your wife? Where you live, the home you buy, what you do with your money. There's someone that shares your life with you now. Do you talk with them about this? How you'll spend your recreational time? Sometimes our wives are made to feel that they're nothing but a cook or a housekeeper or a nanny or a sex partner rather than a a vital living part of our lives. One flesh. It's very real. And husbands, may the Holy Spirit open our mind and our heart to understand how real this is. And maybe we need to just dig a little deeper in this verse, and we're going to be done within probably three minutes here. This basic needs that need to be met for our wives, this actually nourishing her, this actually feeding her, 
feeding your wife, clothing your wife, providing a home for your wife. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8 says that if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. We live in an age, and you know, it's just funny who the Lord brings tonight. You know, it's no one in my mind here, probably not even in our church, but we just live in an age where a husband, his desire is to stay at home and be lazy and watch TV and just live for himself while his wife goes out and works. And those of you that are dads here, you don't ever wish that for your daughter, do you? <laughs> I don't wish that for my laners. Now, there are times where, you know, for part of the plan, the wife will need to work. There are times where there's extenuating circumstances or that there's certain sacrifices that have to be made in the short term for the greater goal. But we're speaking the actual provision for the home, the provision for the wife. And if your wife is the sole and only breadwinner for your family, you're walking contrary to what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, 8. Are you nourishing your wife? Are you cherishing your wife? Do you show her this tenderness? You know, the donkey on Shrek was so right. You got to, got to have a little tenderness. Are you tender to your wife, showing her affection? When she needs strength, are you right there with her? When she needs encouragement, are you prepared and ready? Do you bring the word? Do you bring prayer? Do you seek words from the Holy Spirit to speak right into her heart? Do you know what her fears and her worries are, her anxieties? Do you know what her needs are? Do you know what her struggles and her sins are? Do you actually talk to her? Do you actually listen to her? Do you provide for your wife as you're nourishing and cherishing her some uninterrupted time to spend with Jesus? Quiet time. Time with ladies to fellowship. You know, the guys, we have core group. We get together every week, you know, and we eat and we talk and we dive in the word and we pray and we rebuke each other and we press on. And the wives, sometimes they don't have that. The husbands, have you even considered saying, I'll watch the kids, honey, while you go out now? And get into fellowship and get into the word. Do you let your wife do ministry? Do you know what your wife's gifts are? And do you encourage her in her spiritual gifts? Do you cherish her? Giving her a little bit of money, maybe your portion of the allowance for this month. And say, go spend it on yourself. Go spend it on yourself. Not on the kids, just go. Be cherished by your husband. Be tenderly cared for by your husband. Does she truly believe that you would sacrifice anything necessary to secure her greatest good? And for this reason, verse 31, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. This doesn't speak of a forsaking or disowning the parents, but it is to say that this new relationship is characterized by certain limitations. It's not going to be the same with mom and dad as it was before. So for those of you that are husband and wife, newlyweds, no, it's good to have this conversation now with the parents. If you see that it's creeping into unhealthy boundaries, a lot of Christian pastors and counselors will tell you in their experience that failures on parents' part to recognize this separation of one union and the beginning of another are common problems within marriages. Those of you that are parents that have children that have been married, be aware of this separation and this new union. For that reason, that oneness, a man will leave his father and mother to be joined to his wife and they will become one flesh. Some of the greatest adjustments that need to become are on the parents' end of things. It's not easy undoing 20 to 30 years of what you've been doing as parents. I mean, I've been doing five and a half years, and it's too much for me already. But part of what you've been doing as a parent has been raising up your child to be let out on their own and to be independent and to be uh, united with their spouse, if God should bring that spouse along. 
When the pastor asks the father, who gives this woman away to this man, something real is taking place. It's not just part of a ceremony, but it's part of this mysterious union, this welding together of husband and wife to make one. There's leaving the mother and father, and there's cleaving to the wife, to hold fast, to be glued together in permanence with the wife. The two shall become one flesh. And Paul says, this is a profound mystery, or in the Greek, a megas mysterion. <laughs> it's a big mystery, but I'm speaking of Christ and the church. George Whitfield was a well-traveled man, and he had a friend named Jonathan Edwards, and he was observing their marriage, and he said, a sweeter couple and Jonathan and Sarah Edwards, I've not yet seen. It causes me to renew those prayers, which for some months I've put up to God, that he would be pleased to send me a daughter of Abraham to be my wife. May we pray for our wives. May we pray that we'd have a Jonathan and Sarah Edwards sweet relationship and that this union would literally, by the power of the Spirit, portray and copy uh, the union, the oneness between Jesus Christ and his church. Let's pray. Tammy, come on up. You can put your things aside. And... Lord, a lot to take in tonight. Just hardworking men and women that have just given to you on the altar their Wednesday nights to just come and hear from you and be transformed, have their mind renewed. And just a lot, of, a lot of scripture here to dive into it. We could take way, way more time. But Lord, we just pray that we, as we come to the fount of self-giving love, of an exclusive love, as we come to where we've seen true love defined and described in the depth of it, at the cross and through Jesus Christ and his love relationship with the church. We're just astounded at, at your plans and at your sovereignty of what you desire our marriages to look like. And, and Lord, just as husbands are addressed really primarily tonight, we see how much we've fallen short. Uh, we see how we have nourished ourselves and cherished ourselves, but have fallen short in nourishing and cherishing our wife. We see how we've bought the expensive bows and the expensive tires and the expensive rims and the expensive toys and the games and the things to satisfy our flesh. But so often our wife just gets, if anything, criticized compared to other wives and how they behave and how they cook and how they clean and why can't you be like that? And, and Lord, that's just not cherishing. That's just not nourishing. Lord, we husbands have fallen short in washing our wives with the water of the word. And there's no time set apart in our day for devotional life with our wives. And there's no time that we give our wives to go and be alone and we watch the kids, Lord. Just we've fallen short in that area as husbands. Bring conviction, God. Lord, this is big. This is sacred. This is holy. And Lord, we just cry out, change us by your spirit to be like you. Lord, those of us that haven't had an exclusive love for our wives, we've been entertaining thoughts of adultery. We've had a wandering eye. We've been lustful and in all the different areas and avenues in our culture that lust can draw us in, Lord. We pray by your spirit, you'd lead us to execute brutally and murder those sinful sources, God, to cut off the hand, to gouge out the eye, to confess sin to you and to confess sin to brothers that we could be healed. And Lord, just as we're cleansed by you, Lord, would you help us to cleanse our wives, to be part of making them holy. Grow our friendships, Lord, that we would have just the, the friendship to call one another out on sin and and just humbly just 
pray and, and bear one another's burdens. And and Lord, our hearts just burn and ache for just the people in our church that we know that, that have hurting marriages, God. And, and Lord, they just need to hear this, Lord. I pray that you would make us change us and and work in us, Lord, so that we could go out and, and just share these truths with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We worship you, Lord. We invite you and cry out for you to just change us into the Ephesians 5 husband and the Ephesians 5 wife. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.